as our current series began to take shape, as I was looking at it, and as each subject was assigned, I thought, well, you know, of course Pastor Tim's going to get Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. That's, that's only right that he should get those. And since Josh is the most evangelistic of us, well, he should, it's only right that he should get to preach on the Great Commission. And since Drew, being the youngest, well, he's going to get the most difficult doctrine of the ascension. And then since I'm the, clearly the most charismatic, I should get Pentecost. <clears throat> so, seriously though, uh, I've really enjoyed this series. We, uh, this time of year, we always uh, pause and reflect on the events of Passion Week, and rightfully so. But this time, we've continued to look further into the life of Christ after his resurrection and delve a bit deeper into the greatest two months in redemptive history. From the triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the events at Pentecost takes roughly 57 days. Today, we're going to take a look at these events surrounding Pentecost, the fulfilled prophecies of Pentecost, the present implications as well as future implications of Pentecost. And our text this morning will be from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We will begin reading in a few moments. April 25th, 2009. If you had told me that I'd be here in this place this morning, standing before you preaching my first sermon, I would have thought that you had lost your mind. Because 12 years ago today, I was still lost in my sin. I wanted nothing to do with the church at all, period. If you would have told the Apostle Paul while he was on the Damascus Road that one day he would write 13 of the 27 books we now have in the New Testament, let alone make the bold statement, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or Peter, the Galilean fisherman, If you would have told him as he was pulling his nets in on the Sea of Galilee that in about three years he would preach the inaugural sermon ushering in the church age, I think it's safe to say that neither man would have thought that was possible. These were not their plans for their lives, but this is precisely the way our God works. For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 29. Our lives are full of these unexpected, unplanned moments. But make no mistake, whether you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, none of our plans... None of our actions will thwart God's will. He will accomplish his purpose. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. From Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Read with me uh, in our text this morning, beginning in chapter 
2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language, our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying with one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering this morning to worship you, to open your word and be taught by it, to be convicted by it, to be transformed by it. May you be glorified in this place today, Father, for you alone are worthy of praise and honor. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The events of Pentecost. Whenever we come to scriptures, we must remember that all of the Bible is about Jesus. Like Pastor Drew said last week, the Old Testament is looking forward, pointing forward to the person and work of Christ. And all of the New Testament is pointing and looking back at to what Jesus has accomplished. Also, the New Testament shines a light, so to speak, on the Old Testament that enables us to better see and understand the overarching meta-narratives of the Bible. Namely, God's redeeming a people for himself through the work of his son Jesus. And I say this by way of reminder because we have a tendency in our country and in America to write ourselves in the pages of Scripture. Our names are not in here. When we come to the Scripture, we see God's hand at work to preserve a people for himself from the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel mentioned in Genesis 3.15 to Noah and the Ark to the Exodus from Egypt to the incarnation of Jesus, just to name a few. Today's passage is yet another monumental moment in redemptive history. In verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The word Pentecost is a Greek word meaning the 50th part of something or the 50th in sequence or in order. To the Jews, it was also the name of their, one of their feasts. It was the feast that took day, place 50 days after Passover. The Old Testament gave it several names. In Exodus 23, it's called the Feast of Harvest. Later in Exodus 34, it's called the Feast of Weeks. And in the book of Numbers, it's called the Day of First Fruits. So all of these are Old Testament references to this 50-day event. We'll take a closer look at the significance of these feasts in just a moment. For now, let's answer the question, who was there in one place? together in one place. Well, if you turn back with me just a page and look in the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 1 of Acts, based on uh, uh, 
chapter 1, we can be certain that it was definitely the 12 disciples. Verse 13 says, and, they, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Jan- Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So there we have 12 names listed. We know, that's, or we know it is uh, definitely those 12. And it's also very likely the 120. Verse 13, 15 says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Also, this would have included Matthias, the newly appointed, newly chosen by God to replace Judas Iscariot. So back up to chapter 4. I mean, uh, verse 4, I'm sorry. Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So whether it was the 120 or just the 12, or whether they were in the same upper room as the, as the Last Supper, or whether they were in a different upper room altogether makes no difference. They were where they were told to be. They were in Jerusalem, and they were together. As an aside, I believe this is a pattern here and throughout Scripture that we as believers, this togetherness, that we, be, we need one another. We need to be together as much as possible. We need to pray for one another. We need to live life together. So back, to, uh, back down to our text in chapter 2 and verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. A sound from heaven. Notice here that the text does not say that they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come. It does not say that they fulfilled some spiritual requirements doesn't say that they met the qualifications of Pentecost or somehow they paid the spiritual price to pull this thing together. What Luke describes in verse 1 is history, and it is history completely at the discretion of God. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven, make a note here, the baptism with the Holy Spirit was a sovereign act of God based on God's timing, not based on anything they did. Luke points only to the history and only to the timing of God. Jesus told them before he ascended that the Father would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, we read, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And again in John 14, chapter uh, chapter 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. The events of Pentecost confirm the kingly authority of Jesus. A sound from heaven. A noise like a mighty rushing wind. This is the noise like a, this is the noise like a wind, but this is not a wind. Wind makes a loud noise. The wind here, however, is not to indicate actual wind, but to be a metaphor, an analogy to describe the kind of sound that they heard. There's no wind. Nothing is blowing around. There's only a sound like a hurricane. The word translated here, wind, is not the usual one, which is pneuma, 
but is one used here and only one other place, and that's in chapter, seven, uh, chapter 17 and verse 25. And it really means a blast, perhaps like a blast of an, blast an airplane makes when it breaks the sound barrier, a sonic boom, if you will. The analogy means to point to the breath of God, the power of God. God the Holy Spirit coming from heaven and resting on the disciples. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism Jesus said would take place in a few days. In verses 3 and 4, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here there's an illusion of the... an illusion of the baptism in Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Just as a sound like a wind was symbolic, these were not literal flames, but fire. These were not literal flames of fire, but actual supernatural indicators that God had sent the Holy Spirit upon each believer. Fire denotes divine presence. The flaming torch in Genesis 15, the burning bush of Exodus 3, and in Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22, tells us that the Lord God went before them in a, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God was always with his people. He is forever faithful. He began to speak other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The disciples, having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, began to manifest the signs of the Spirit. The signs of the Spirit we can read in 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11 tell us that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and another to the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Here we see clearly that all the gifts of the Spirit are given by God, the third person of the Godhead. God the Holy Spirit distributes to each according to His will and His good pleasure. We cannot manufacture of our own human human will these gifts. They are not for us to choose. They are always for God and for His glory alone. The disciples began to speak in other tongues, other languages, not their own, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is not gibberish. This is never gibberish. They are speaking a known language. Moving along, as we uh, read in verses 5 through 13, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is this that we hear each one of us in his own language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, 
Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own, lang- own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Here in Jerusalem, there are people from all nations and languages of the known world. They are all together in one place, and they are hearing the disciples tell of the mighty works of God in their own language. Notice their first question. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans had a distinct accent. Matthew chapter uh, 26, verse 69 through 73, they recounts uh, Peter being confronted where he actually denied Christ three times. At the very end, the last accusers, <clears throat> uh, the last accuser uh, says to him, and his response to her is, after a little while, the bystander came up to Peter and said, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. They wouldn't have looked much different than anyone else in Jerusalem. The disciples would have looked just like everyone else. But they definitely sounded different. But this wasn't just that they sounded different. They had a thick accent. I think we all know or have met people that, though they, we technically speak the same language, they're, hard to, they're difficult to understand. That's how we need to understand what's happening here. These typically hardworking, not very educated, hard to understand people are speaking to every nation under heaven. And they were all able to understand them. Also at Pentecost, we see a reversal of Babel. In Genesis 11, verses 7 through 9, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Since there are many nations and languages today, we know that the reversal was temporary. God the Holy Spirit broke down the language barrier to tell of the mighty works of God. Whether the disciples are speaking in their language, whether the disciples are speaking in their native tongue and the people hear them in their own language, or whether they are speaking in another tongue and they are able to be heard clearly, What is certain is that everyone is clearly hearing of the mighty works of God in their own language. God the Holy Spirit has broken down every language barrier for his glory. That which was scattered at Babel has been brought together temporarily at Pentecost. That, uh, the language barrier created at Babel has been restored temporarily at Pentecost. Verse 5 says, where exactly are these people from? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Since some of us, if we've got that map, Drew, our visual learners, do you have that map? This is a map of the nations listed here in uh, chapter 2 of Acts. These men are Jews from every nation under heaven. We can see this clearly that every nation represented here, this is the known world, and they've been drawn to Jerusalem. You can leave that up for just a minute if you would. For years, a couple of us got together regularly every Tuesday morning at Pastor Tim's house 
to read the different books and discuss them. For our purposes today, one book stands out. It's a book, in, it's a book by James Hamilton titled God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. In it, Hamilton traces this theme throughout all 66 books of the Bible. When we read of Israel's history from the pages of Scripture, we see this pattern of repeated sin and rebellion by the people against God. And God, speaking through the prophets, continues to call them to turn from their wicked ways. But the people continue in their rebellion. This pattern of sin eventually leads Israel to split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They are both eventually exiled. First, the, nor the northern kingdom is taken captive by Assyria in 720 B.C. And the southern kingdom is taken captive by Babylon and exiled there in 586 B.C. If you were to look at a map of these two ancient kingdoms, it would mirror this map of the nations present in Jerusalem at Pentecost. In the providence of God, he used these pagan nations as his instruments of judgment. He scattered his people across the known world for his glory. That in his perfect time, he would call every nation to repentance. Here at Pentecost, these devout Jews were making their annual pilgrimage to the Passover feast and the feast of the harvest. As the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born, the world is present. You can take that down. Moving along, verse 13 says... They were, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking say they are filled with new wine. In his commentary, John Calvin comments on this particular verse. Calvin says, if men and women could ridicule the acts of, the acts of God, which clearly revealed his wonderful power, what will they do to teaching that they think is commonplace? Luke is not suggesting that the people who laughed were those who were utterly depraved and beyond hope. Rather, he, was, he is showing how the ordinary man in the street reacts, reacted to the miracle. It has always been like this in the world. Nor is it surprising for true religion is a rare virtue that few possess. And yet it is the beginning of understanding. However, though most people arrogantly refuse to think about the acts of God, those divine acts are never without fruit, as we see in history. The acts of God are always mocked and scorned by the unbelieving world. It was true in Jesus' day, and it is still true today, perhaps even more. Moving along to uh, point two, fulfilled prophecies of Pentecost. And our scripture reading this morning are just two examples of many in which God, through the prophets, told of his sending the Holy Spirit. And it... <clears throat> And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit of all flesh, from Joel 2.28. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, from Ezekiel 36. Again, these are just two examples of many in which it was prophesied by God in the Old Testament of a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Also, I had mentioned earlier that we would revisit the significance of the feast in the books of Exodus and Numbers, as well as the significance of the Greek word Pentecost. Again, Pentecost is a word, a Greek word meaning the 50th part of something, or the 50th in sequence, or in order. 
when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Notice here that this was not a request from God to Moses, nor was it a request to Pharaoh. God said, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And through a series of ten plagues, that's exactly what God does. He sent one plague after the other, beginning with the turning, of, uh, turning water into blood, second frogs, third gnats, fourth flies, fifth, the death of all Egyptian livestock, sixth, boils, seventh, hail, eighth, locusts, ninth, darkness, and finally the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. These plagues were devastating to the nation of Egypt. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but God keeps his promises and he accomplishes his purposes. The Lord speaks to Aaron and Moses. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take, a, shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. When they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, they shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is the institution of the first Passover. The Jews kept this feast throughout their generations. Pharaoh's heart is hardened once again, though, and the Egyptians set out after the Israelites, and they pursued them to the banks of the Red Sea. God parts the sea, 
and the Israelites passed through on dry ground. But as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the, all of the host of Pharaoh had followed them into the sea. None of them remained. The Lord led the Israelites into the wilderness for many days, eventually reaching Mount Sinai. Jewish tradition has it that from the exodus from Egypt to Mount Sinai takes roughly 50 days. Mount Sinai is where God gave his law to the Israelites. Among the many things associated with the giving of the law, perhaps nothing is more important than the instructions for the tabernacle. God is once again dwelling with his people. What was lost in the garden is restored, though not perfectly. Pentecost is the Jewish feast of the harvest observed 50 days after the Passover. Here God sends the Holy Spirit. God has led the nations to Jerusalem, much like he led the Israelites out of Egypt to Sinai for a harvest. God the Holy Spirit now dwells within each believer, writing the law of God on, his, on their hearts. From the garden temple of Eden to the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple in Jerusalem. And now, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you now to the temple of the believer? This is a further restoration of what was lost in the garden. However, this restoration is not perfect. Not yet. Next week, Pastor Tim is going to preach a sermon on the return of Christ. When the bridegroom returns to, for his bride, the restoration of what was lost in the garden will then be complete. Point three, the implications of Pentecost. We see the birth of the church at Pentecost. Pastor Tim opened this series with his sermon from Acts 2, verses 22 through 41. Here we, we see... Uh, Luke's account of Peter's sermon. This difficult to understand Galilean fisherman who boldly stood before the nations and proclaimed the mighty works of God. What we know about Peter from the Bible is that while he and the other disciples were with Jesus during his earthly ministry, Peter often spoke up quite boldly. What we also know from Scripture is that this was not always portrayed as an a good thing for Peter. In his book titled 12 Ordinary Men, Pastor John MacArthur writes his first chapter of his book about Peter. In it, the title of that chapter is called The Disciple with the Foot-Shaped Mouth. This is an accurate description of Peter. So what happened to this same man that just weeks ago denied knowing the Lord Jesus? I've often posed the question, were the disciples saved when Jesus called them at the beginning of his ministry or was it here at Pentecost? I believe the scripture is crystal clear and also a bit vague. How is that possible? The part that's a bit vague to me is when, when were they born again? When did they move from death to life, Ephesians 2? I don't find a definitive answer from scripture. And if I'm off base here, I'm welcome to, for correction. But what I do see that is crystal clear is that whether it was when they were called or here at Pentecost, they were indeed born again. They were indeed brought from death to life. 
Paul tells us in Romans 8.30, and, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why do I bring this up? Because I find the saving work of God incredibly awesome and fantastic. This has never been a ho-hum thing for me. So by God's grace, I seek to learn more about him and his saving work. Peter was always portrayed as being bold. But here at Pentecost, being bold, he, but he wasn't exactly keen on what was actually happening theologically. He just didn't quite get it. But here at Pentecost, he stands boldly, and now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, his theology is corrected. Now he gets it. He quotes Scripture, the declaration he made back in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is the Christ. He now understands more fully. I have lost my face. There it is. He now understands more fully what he was saying there. We know this because back in chapter 1 of Acts, before Jesus ascends back to the Father, the disciples asked the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answered them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He now gets it. They get it now, but they did not get it then. At his ascension, they still don't ex quite get what's fixing to happen. In the book of Acts, the church is born here in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Acts chapters 2 through 7 records the early church, records for us the events of the early church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8 through 12, it records for us the events of the church as it spreads to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And Acts chapter 13 through 28 records for us the events of the church as it spread to the ends of the earth. Peter and the disciples, these 12 ordinary men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaim the gospel, in Jesus, the gospel of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 3,000 souls were added that day at Pentecost. And the last few verses of chapter 2 tells us, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and, all had, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had deed. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These 12 ordinary men quickly grew by the thousands. These 12 ordinary men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, did extraordinary things. Here we read that God is adding to his church day by day. God continues to add to his church day by day. For the last 2,000 years, God is adding to his church each and every day. In closing, 
read with me if you will. Beginning in John chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 1. Let not, your, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to, a prayer, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, I, <clears throat> we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I and the Father that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. This will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, was crucified. Our spotless Passover lamb sacrificed on a Roman cross, buried. Three days later, he walks out of the tomb. Death could not hold him. He ascends into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, our perfect high priest. Forever interceding for us, God the Holy Spirit descends, the third person of the Godhead. The Spirit reaps a harvest at Pentecost. The church is born. The tomb is empty. Our Savior lives. He is returning soon to the glory of the God the Father. We see at Pentecost the parallels of the nation of Egypt and the institution of the first Passover and Christ our perfect Passover lamb. And then the giving of the law of God to the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai. And God the Holy Spirit on Pentecost coming and writing his law on our hearts and indwelling us. Friends, do you know him? If you do know him, do you tell others about him? Church, as the bride of Christ, our bridegroom is going to return one day for us. Until that day, we need to be about his business. Let us boldly boast about our bridegroom for he alone is worthy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are wonderful in all the earth. You are a gracious and merciful. You are faithful to the faithless, 
Strengthen our faith. Create in us a boldness and unwavering resolve to take the gospel to the nations. To tell of the works of our great, great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. To stand before an increasingly hostile world with the saving power of the gospel. Knowing that you will indeed accomplish your purposes. Use us, Father, for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.